Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. You probably didn't think you would ever hear me say those words after spending so long in the Sermon on the Mount, but we have finished and we're going to start the next portion. Uh, and let's read verses 1 to 15. Of course, we're not going to cover all of that, but uh, that is the the passage that we're going to be studying bits and pieces till we finish it. It says, When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priests, and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a, a centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my slave, Do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. In a sense... Matthew 8 picks up where chapter 4 left off with the Sermon on the Mount as sort of a parenthesis in between. At the end of chapter 4, in verses 23 to 25, we read that Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Uh, and then chapter 5 opens by telling us that Jesus went up on the mountain where he preached his great sermon. And after it concludes, 8.1 tells us when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. So it, this Chapter 8 just sort of picks up where chapter 4 left off. Now, as we saw when we started this study, Matthew has been presenting Jesus as the Messiah King, the anointed ruler. And to do that, Matthew began with Jesus' genealogy to prove his legal qualifications to be the Messiah. And then in chapters 1 and 2, he presented Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy in his birth and by the Magi's visit and by his flight into Egypt. And then in chapter 3, he presented Jesus' 
qualifications by the preaching of the Messiah's forerunner, John the Baptist, and by God the Father's own attestation as to who Jesus is at his baptism. And then in chapter 4, he presents Jesus' spiritual qualifications by his perfect resistance to Satan's temptations. And then in chapters 5 to 7, he presents Jesus' theological qualifications as seen in the profundity of his great sermon. Now in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew sets forth another qualification that demonstrates Jesus' qualifications as the Messiah. And that is by his divine power. Now why does he do that? Because Matthew is carefully laying out his case for the divinity and kingship of Jesus Christ. And what better way to do that than to follow telling us about the astonishment of the Jews uh, at the authoritative nature of Jesus' teaching in chapter 7, verses 28-29, with this series of miracles. Because think about it. Those who heard him asked the question, who is this guy that's saying these things? By what authority does he speak? Why should we listen to him? Why should we believe what he has to say? What gives him the right to say these things and affirm that they're true? And chapters 8 and 9 are the answer to that question. In effect, <clears throat> Matthew says, I'll tell you what gives him the right. He is God, and that's what gives him the right. He's showing beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is God. How do you know he's God? Because only God can do the kinds of things that Jesus did. And so for two chapters, Matthew tells us about Jesus healing and casting out demons and demonstrating power of nature over nature and the created world. And so we see God at work. This is Matthew's answer to the question, by whose authority does he say these things? So in this section, Matthew records a series of miracles to prove beyond doubt that Jesus is the very Son of God because only God could perform such supernatural feats. We know from all of the various scriptural accounts that Jesus healed thousands of people during his three years of earthly ministry. But Matthew selects out nine miracles to demonstrate the power of Jesus Christ. They are his credentials as the Messiah. They are signs which point convincingly to his deity because only God can do the things that he does. In the next two chapters, we're going to see Jesus cleanse a leper, heal two paralytics, instantly cool a fever, calm a storm at sea, cast out demons, raise a girl from the dead, give sight to two blind men, restore speech to a man who was made mute by a demon, and heal every other kind of disease and sickness. And in the middle of those, Matthew even throws in the story of his own calling to be one of Christ's disciples, which to Matthew was nothing short of a miracle in and of itself. The terribly tragic thing, though, is that after all of the miracles in chapters 8 and 9, after the preaching that occurs after that, many of the Jews, including their religious leadership, conclude in chapter 12 that Jesus is performing his miracles by Satan's power. That was their conclusion. So in many ways, this becomes the heart of Matthew's message. Christ does everything possible to manifest his deity, and they conclude exactly the opposite. And so in chapter 13, he begins 
teaching in parables, stories with meanings designed so that only those who are his true children will understand them. And he begins to take the first steps towards establishing his Gentile church, including Gentiles and his miracles and teaching and slowly turning from ministry exclusively to the Jews. Now, as I said, there are nine miracles in these two chapters, and they come in three sections of three miracles. Uh, then a response. There, so there's three miracles and then a response, three miracles, then a response, three miracles, then a response, all designed to manifest the deity of Jesus Christ. So first of all, let's look at the first three miracles. The first miracle involves the healing of a leper. The second involves the healing of a paralytic. The third involves healing a woman with a fever. And there's several key things to note about these first three miracles. First, they begin at the lowest level of human need, the physical. Life is more than just the physical aspect, but Jesus is also sympathetic about the physical. It's wonderful that the miracles of Jesus were not only miracles that dealt with spiritual matters, but that they touched man at the lowest level of need, the physical. He goes to the depths of human disease. In the second set of miracles, he deals more with the spiritual. And in the third set of miracles, he deals with the ultimate enemy of man, death itself. But at this point, he's dealing with that base level of human need, physical health, which shows us not only the power of Christ, but the sympathy of Christ. The second thing to note is that Jesus responds in all three cases to the appeals of those affected in some way by the disease, either directly or indirectly, because it was a friend or a family member. This shows us his compassion. In the first case, the leper says to him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. In the second case, a centurion says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. In the third case, Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever, and according to the parallel passages in Mark and Luke, her family and friends asked him to heal her. In all three cases, he responds to the appeals from the hearts of people. The third thing to note about these three miracles is that in every case, he acts on his own will. Although he is sympathetic, and although he is at the same time deeply compassionate, he is also sovereign, and that's an important thing to note. In each case, he acts on his own, of his own volition. Uh, to the leper, he says, I'm willing, be cleansed. <clears throat> to the centurion, he says, I will come and heal him. And it says regarding Peter's mother-in-law that he touched her hand and the fever left her. And fourth, and this is significant, in each of these miracles, he touches someone who, in terms of the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leadership, were at the lowest levels of humanity. First, a leper, considered to be an untouchable. Second, a Gentile, considered to be unworthy of God's care. And third, a woman, considered to be of less value than a man. The fact that he does that for these people reveals a subtlety that devastates Jewish and Pharisaical pride. You see that Jesus puts his hand, his emphasis on the humble, on the lowly, on the outcast. 
who was the first person to whom he revealed that he was the Messiah? You remember? The Samaritan woman. Yeah, a woman who was at the very least an adulterer and very likely a prostitute. Uh, the Jews despised the Samaritans. Uh, they despised adulterous prostitutes. They looked down on women. She was the complete package of those that they demeaned and despised. Yet he revealed who he was to her before anyone else. That really says something about who he came to reach, doesn't it? Uh, you remember what he read from Isaiah in the synagogue at Nazareth? He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. Those are the kinds of people he touches with these miracles, those who were poor and captive and oppressed. So from the very start, he makes it clear that he's going to establish his authority by miraculous power. And he's also going to show his sympathy for those who are hurting at the lowest level of human need. He's going to compassionately respond to the cries of their friends and those who have needs, and yet he is going to act sovereignly as the Lord that he is. But the sad thing that just boggles your mind and breaks your heart is that after doing all of that, they turn their backs on him and they conclude in chapter 12 that he does all these things by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. They hated him. In fact, they had to kill him because he upset their religious security. So let's begin looking at each of these miracles and we'll begin with the first one in verses 1 to 4. And we see that Jesus heals a leper. Let me read verses 1 to 4 again. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. At first thought, you might think, well, wasn't that nice of Jesus? That's a wonderful story. Well, let me see if we can dig in deeper into that to see what it's really about. Notice the beginning of verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, what mountain? Well, the mountain that he had just been teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, near the village of Capernaum. And large crowds followed him. Why? Well, let me tell you something. It was not because they loved and adored him. It wasn't because they believed he was the Messiah. Uh, it was simply because they were curious. Uh, they had never heard anyone speak with such authority. They'd never seen anyone who could go around healing people. They were uncommitted observers, amazed at what Jesus did, what he said, but not convicted of their need of him as their Lord and Savior. So he attracted a huge crowd, and they all come down the mountain after him, eager to see what he'll do and say next. And verse 2 tells us, And a leper came to him. The word came means to approach, to come near to. That's interesting, because lepers didn't approach people. 
according to Leviticus 13.45, they had to wear torn clothing, uncover their head, and wear a mask over their mouth and cry unclean, unclean wherever they went so that others could avoid them. They lived a life of isolation and exile from both their family and the rest of the community. They didn't approach anyone deliberately, but this one did. Now the English word leper is transliterated from the Greek word lepros, uh, which comes from this root word, lepis, uh, which means scale or scaly. Uh, in the Old Testament, if you have a Hebrew word that is translated leprosy, which comes from a root word, which also means scale or scaly. Uh, so in both disease, uh, cases, it has reference to some kind of a skin disease in which the skin was visibly scaly. If you go back and read Leviticus 13, you realize that the term was used for a variety of terrible skin diseases which were contagious to others, particularly if someone touched them or got close enough for them to cough on them. Uh, scientists believe the disease spreads when the infected person coughs or sneezes. Uh, and the healthy person breathes in those droplets containing the bacteria. That's why it makes sense why God said that the Israelite lepers were to wear a mask over their mouth. Now, there's a lot of argument and debate about whether leprosy, as it is called in the scriptures, is the same kind of leprosy we have today, which is known medically as Hansen's disease. Uh, and we can't be sure because over the centuries, diseases mutate and they take on new forms. Uh, they're communicated in different ways. Uh, vaccines are developed. People build up immunities to them. We all know that with the recent COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the virus has now mutated multiple times and many people have built up immunity and many of the strains are weaker than the first one or one or two that came out. Uh, it's the same way with any disease. Now, most medical historians believe that leprosy originated in Egypt and the leprosy bacillus called Myobacterium leprae has been found in at least one mummy which also showed the typical scaly evidence of the disease on its skin. Uh, and since the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, it was obviously there that the disease made its way into the Hebrew population. And when they came from the promised land into the promised land, they brought the disease with them. And based upon the description of the various manifestations of leprosy given in Leviticus 13, while it may not have been the exact same disease as Hansen's disease, it was very similar and had many of the same characteristics. This severe disease was the most feared disease in the ancient world. Uh, and so God, as he gave the Mosaic law to Israel in order to protect them, he gave them laws to deal with leprosy so they would not spread or contract this disease. Uh, even though there is no complete cure for modern-day leprosy, about 90% of the people in the world today are immune to it. And for the other 10% who are susceptible, we have antibiotics and medications that can keep it in check. But it was far more communicable in biblical times, and they didn't have the levels of immunity 
nor the medications that we have today to fight it. In fact, in Luke 4, 27, Jesus made the comment that there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Nahum the Syrian. Uh, so it's clearly more communicable back then, whereas it is not today. That's a fact I'm very happy about because armadillos are the only creature found in the world here in the United States that are naturally infected uh, with the bacteria that causes Hansen's disease. And when I was a teenager in, in my 20s, I did a lot of hunting here in Florida and we often killed and handled armadillos. Uh, they were and are considered an invasive species and the Florida Wildlife Commission permitted hunters to shoot them just to eradicate them. So through the years, I probably killed two or three dozen of them myself and was present when several dozen more were killed by my hunting buddies. Uh, we once thought about cleaning one to eat it because we read that they taste like pork. Um, but it was so difficult to remove it from its armor or shell that we gave up. That may have been the Lord's protection for us because in preparing for this lesson, I read about an outbreak of leprosy in Brazil that was the result of people eating armadillo meat. Um, so leprosy is still around. Uh, globally, there are about 200,000 cases diagnosed each year, but only about 150 to 200 cases in the United States each year. Uh, and it's now very hard to contract leprosy because, as I said, it's mutated to the point where it requires prolonged, close contact with someone with untreated leprosy over many months in order to contract it. That is, unless you eat the meat of a leprous armadillo. Uh, so into the population of Israel came this disease. And God, wanting to protect them, gave them very clear direction as to how to treat it. Uh, rather than go back and read it in all its detail, let me just summarize for you what God told them back in Leviticus 13 about how to deal with leprosy. If a person is suspected of having the disease, he was to be taken to a priest for examination. You say, why a priest? Why not a doctor? Well, they didn't have medical doctors in those days. Uh, the pagans had their sorcerers and witch doctors, but the Jews worshiped the true living God. Uh, so they were to go to the man who was expected to be in ongoing communication with him. Uh, and in the a theocratic society like the nation of Israel before the establishment of the monarchy, the priests were the ruling class of the people who made, who, who, who made and ruled and judged and made decisions for the people, made decisions for them. So the person was taken to a priest, and if he showed signs of having more than a superficial skin problem, he was isolated for seven days. If the symptoms became worse, then the individual was isolated for seven more days. Uh, if at that time the rash had either cleared up or not spread further, the person was declared clean. Uh, even if they still had a rash at that point, if it had not spread or gone deeper into the skin, they were declared clean. It was probably something like psoriasis or eczema or something similar kind of thing that were not at all leprous. Uh, Herodotus and Hippocrates wrote about a condition known as leukoderma, uh, which means white skin in Greek. Um, it's known today as vitiglio, uh, I always say this improperly, vitiglio, 
Okay, never mind. Uh, it's an autoimmune condition in which the skin loses its pigment cells and it becomes patchy white. Uh, but it's not harmful to the individual other than affecting the appearance of the skin. So someone may have that condition and they would have been considered clean. However, if the priest saw that the condition had spread and gotten worse, the person was declared unclean. If the hair in the infected places was turning white caused by the leprosy killing the hair follicles and there were sores, it was leprosy and the person was immediately declared unclean. Now there were two kinds of leprosy. One is called lepromatous leprosy, which is severe, serious, and widespread across the body. Uh, it's the type which is most contagious, causes great damage to the body, and may eventually be fatal. Uh, without treatment, it can cause hair loss, blindness, disfiguration of the face, kidney failure, muscle weakness that leads to claw-like hands, and being unable to flex your feet, permanent damage to the inside of your nose, causing constant nosebleeds, a stuffy nose, permanent damage to the nerves outside your brain and spinal cord, including those of your arms, legs, and feet. The less contagious form is called tuberculoid leprosy. Uh, there are a few lesions or patches with that kind, and usually it goes away in one to three years. But it does leave you with numbness in the affected areas of your skin because of the nerve damage underneath. So what were the priests to do with these people? Well, they went through the process laid out in Leviticus 13, and they made a diagnosis. Interestingly, because leprosy causes hair loss, God made sure to include in verse 40 of Leviticus 13 that if a man loses the hair of his head, he's bald, he's clean. <laughs> Some of you guys are breathing a sigh of relief. But he, he did go on to say that if there is a swollen, reddish, white infection on the already bald head, it was leprosy and that man was unclean. Uh, now verse 45 is the key. It says, as for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn and the hair of his head shall be uncovered and he shall cover his mustache, that is his mouth, and cry, unclean, unclean. As I said, scientists believe leprosy spreads by breathing the droplets from the coughs and sneezes of the leper. So God commanded that lepers wear a mask, but it can be spread also can be spread by contact with objects that the leper has handled, particularly if the person then puts their hand into their mouth or has an open cut or some other way for the bacteria to enter their bloodstream. So to prevent infection to others, the leper had to spend the rest of his life going around with his face covered, saying unclean, unclean, so that no one would get near him. The Talmud says you couldn't get any closer than six feet to a leper, and if there was a wind blowing, the, it was to be 150 feet. Uh, and there were 61 defilements in Judaism. That is, 61 ways for a person to become defiled. The number one way was to handle a dead body. Number two was to touch a leper. Uh, so no one went near or touched a leper. <clears throat> now, lepromatous, lepromatous leprosy is a terrible disease. If caught in the early stages, we can cure it today. But even with advanced cases, today's medical treatments 
can only control it, they do it quite effectively so people live a fairly normal life, even though it, that doesn't undo the damage that's already been done. Uh, but in biblical times, it would be completely uncontrolled. And the primary thing the leprosy does is cause nerve damage to the skin. It deadens all the nerves in the skin so that, that people lose the feelings in their fingers, hands, toes, and feet. And they literally rub off those extremities. Uh, they have no sense of pain in their hands and feet. So they do things that damage them severely, causing infections with open sores that bleed and are filled with pus, and often the extremity has to be amputated. It attacks the eyes, it brings blindness, it attacks the gums and teeth so they fall out, it disfigures the face with swollen uh, tumor-like bumps, and it's, so it's just ugly. But at the same time, it's not painful. It's the, just the ugliest thing imaginable in the world, but not painful. In his book titled Unclean, Unclean, Dr. L.S. Heisinger has described some of the horrors of leprosy. And I'm quoting here. The disease which we today call leprosy generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Numbness follows. Soon the skin in such point, spots loses its original color. It begins to be thick, glossy, and scaly. As the sickness progresses, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. The skin, especially around the eyes and ears, begins to bunch with deep furrows between the swellings so that the face of the afflicted individual begins to resemble the face of a lion. Fingers drop off or are absorbed. Toes are similar, affected similarly. Eyebrows and eyelashes drop out. By this time, one can see the person in this pitiable condition is a leper. By the touch of the finger, one can also feel it. One can even smell it, for the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in view of the fact that the disease-producing agent frequently also attacks the larynx, the leper's voice assumes a grating quality. His throat becomes hoarse, and you can now not only see, feel, and smell the leper, but you can hear his rasping voice. And if you stay with him for some time, you can even imagine a peculiar taste in your mouth, probably due to the odor, end quote. So obviously this disease was feared. And whether it could attack the whole total population or only a few, it was enough to want them to be outside of the camp to protect the people. To explain how dreaded and awful this disease was, in 2 Samuel 3.29, David was pronouncing a curse on Joab, who had murdered Abner, and part of his curse, he said, may the house of Joab never be without one who is leprous. That was considered one of the worst things you could wish upon someone. But beyond that, it wasn't simply bad enough to be horribly disfigured and repulsive, but to add to that, leopards were lepers were classified as ceremonially unclean, and God had a purpose in commanding that. Why? Because leprosy was the most graphic illustration of sin available to God. You see, sin defiles the whole body. It's ugly, it's loathsome, it's incurable, it's contaminating. Sin separates and alienates and makes outcasts of men. So every leper not only lived with the horror of his own disease, but he lived with the stigma of being a walking illustration of sin 
ceremonially unclean, unable to experience any kind of relationship with God through the temple worship sacrifices and feasts. In the Talmud, one of the rabbis wrote, when I see lepers, I throw stones at them lest they come near me. Another rabbi said, I would not so much as eat an egg that was purchased on a street where a leper had walked. If a leper even stuck his head inside a house, the house was declared unclean. It was illegal to greet a leper. They hated them. They despised. They feared them. There's much more I could tell you about this horrible disease of leprosy, but for the sake of time and the risk of running the risk of boring you, I would just refer you to the book, Where is God When It Hurts? by um, Philip Yancey, in which he writes about Dr. Paul Brand, who was one of the world's foremost authorities on leprosy. Dr. Brand, until his death in 2003, was a pioneer in leprosy research and was the doctor who discovered the primary thing leprosy does is deaden the nerves so that the leper no longer feels pain and then they injure their extremities because of the lack of sensation. He, was once, he once referred to leprosy as a painless hell. Um, Dr. Brand was born to British missionaries in India. He grew up there until he went to the UK for his college and medical education. And after serving as a casualty physician during the London Blitz in World War II, he returned to India after the war as an orthopedic hand surgeon along with his wife, Margaret, uh, who was an ophthalmologist and eye surgeon. And they served in the Christian Medical College and Hospital in Valor, India. And it was there that he became interested in the many deformities that he was seeing due to leprosy and began his research leading to his transformational work on the treatment of the disease. And he also wrote a couple of other books with Philip Yancey. One is Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, and the other is Pain, the Gift Nobody Wants, which was later reissued with an updated title, The, the Gift of Pain. Um, if you like to read Christian books dealing with medical issues and their relationship to spiritual matters, I think you'd find those interesting. So then, after all that background information on leprosy, now going back to our text in Matthew 8, I hope you understand how shocking it would have been to the people that Jesus, who was presenting himself to be the Messiah, God in flesh, begins to verify his claims by healing a leper. Let's look at him. Look at verse 2. There's something that's here that you miss if you're using the New American Standard or the NIV. I know the translators decided to smooth out the language here, but in doing so, they left out an important word that's in the King James Version and in the English Standard Version and the Legacy Standard Bible. The sentence actually begins with these words, and behold, a leper came. They left out the word behold in the New American Standard. But that's a significant word here. It's Matthew's way of expressing how shocking this was. It's as if he's saying in the vernacular, you're never going to believe this, a leper came. Now, why did Matthew say that? Because lepers didn't approach people. That was forbidden. It was unthinkable. People would run away from you. You were an outcast. The Old Testament law and social stigma wouldn't allow that. You just went around with your mouth covered up, rasping, unclean, 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 so that no one would come near you. So this is incredible. Now there's four things that stand out about this leper. 
First, he came with confidence. He didn't crawl. He didn't sneak around trying to call out to Jesus, get his attention. Instead, it says he came. The Greek verb means to approach, to come near to. I imagine that those close to Jesus backed away in a hurry so that the only person near Jesus was the leper. This guy obviously sensed a love and tenderness in Jesus that allowed him to approach him without fear of reprisal or rejection. Somehow he knew Jesus was neither afraid of him nor ashamed to associate with him. He didn't, he didn't shout to Jesus from a distance as he was supposed to do, but he approached him directly and without hesitation. He was a man who sensed his need so desperately that he couldn't care less what anyone else thought. Most lepers were socially so socially devastated that they would never show up in a crowd of people, but this one did. His need was greater than his shame. In the parallel account in Luke 5, it says the man was covered with leprosy or full of leprosy. He, his was a serious advanced case. You could probably smell him coming from the stench of his rotting infected flesh. Josephus tells us that lepers were treated like dead men, but that didn't stop this guy. He may have been a dead man in everyone else's eyes, but he didn't care. He came. He came because he saw he had a very deep need and he wanted help more than he wanted to save his reputation. File that away in your memory somewhere, will you? The second thing to notice about him is that he came with reverence. Verse 2 says, And behold, a leper came and bowed down before him and said, Lord, isn't that great? We can't say much about his body, but we can say a lot about his soul, can't we? There was a, there's an incredible contrast here. I'm sure there were some of the Pharisees standing a few yards away watching this, and they would have been all decked out in their fancy robes, wearing their special little hats, beards trimmed so properly, wearing the accoutrements of their Pharisaical order. But inside, they're wretched and rotten. They're like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, and yet here is this leper, filthy, vile, wretched, and ugly on the outside. But on the inside, he's beautiful and reverent and worshipful. And from the reverential nature of his request to Jesus, I believe that when he said, Lord, he wasn't using that like the title, Sir. Rather, I believe he understood that he was in the presence of God, because why else would he have fallen prostrate, bowing down before him, before Jesus and telling him that he knows Jesus can heal him. The word translated bowed down is translated in other places as worshiped. It refers to bowing down before a king or God in reverence. It was a common position for worship. I believe that's what this man is doing. He is reverently prostrating himself before the one whom he believes is the Messiah who can heal him. If you'll recall back in Matthew 4, Verses 23 and 24, before the Sermon on the Mount, we're told that Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread through all Syria. They brought to him all those who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Now, interestingly, you notice what kind of disease is missing from that list? 
leprosy. It's possible that there were other lepers Jesus healed previously under those designations of every kind of disease and various diseases, but I'm doubtful of that because lepers were such ostracized outcasts that no one would have brought one of them to Jesus. They weren't allowed to be near anyone. So I think this guy was the first leper Jesus ever healed. I obviously can't be dogmatic about that, but that's what I think. So this man comes and he worships. I believe he came because he had a worshiping heart. I believe he knew, understood he was in the presence of God. And it was wonderful to see that his soul is turned towards God. Third, the good thing about him is he came with humility. He came with humility. He came expectantly, not demandingly. He says, Lord, if you are willing. That's humility. He didn't speak his will as if Jesus had to comply. He didn't come with a list of all the reasons why he was worthy of being healed. He, was, he wasn't trying to affirm his own worthiness. He didn't even talk about his desires. He didn't say, Lord, I would like to be healed. He didn't even say that. He says, Lord, if you're willing, you can. I'm not telling you what you ought to do. After all, you're the Lord. Don't you like that? That's a far cry from the garbage you hear today in the Word of Faith movement where they tell people to demand that God heal them to claim their healing. This man has nothing to claim. He worshiped first, never asked for anything. He, said, he just said, you know, I know you can if you're willing. I love what Bible scholar R.C.H. Linsky writes in his commentary on the verse. Listen to what he says about this leper. <clears throat> Quote, He's not expressing doubt in regard to the will of Jesus, but his own humble submission to Jesus. This humble submission, placing his own sad case completely in the hands of Jesus, just as a true child of God must always place himself into God's hands, marks this leper's faith in Jesus as being of the highest type. A petition such as this can properly be addressed only to a divine helper, to one whose will is the very will of the all-loving and all-wise God. This leper is willing, if Jesus shall so will, to remain in his living death. Submissive faith can go no further. This leper distinguishes divine temporal from divine spiritual and eternal gifts. He knows that he is asking only for the former, which God's wisdom and love may and often does withhold from us. But gifts such as pardon, peace, Spiritual consolation and strength are always freely granted since it is without question God's will that we have them. How this leper came to such faith we're unable to say, but his case is one which shows clearly how the teaching of Jesus produced the most blessed spiritual effects. End quote. Fourth and finally, this leper came with faith. He says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He says, you're able to heal me. You have the power. You're able. I know that. I'm convinced of that. Listen, when a man who has an advanced case of leprosy says, if you will, you can do it. That's faith at its highest point. Because it knows that God is able and it submits to God's sovereignty. There are lots of people who believe God can heal. They say they believe he's able, but they, he's able, but they want to box him into a corner and insist that he must do so. And then there are those who question whether or not he can. 
But true faith says, Lord, I know you can, but I don't know if you will. That's your choice. That's the highest level of faith. Whatever you choose to do, Lord, that's your choice. You know, this guy reminds me, in a sense, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who told Nebuchadnezzar, if it be so, our God whom we, able, or we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. This guy knew Jesus was able to heal him, but even if he didn't, he would submit to God's sovereignty. He had genuine faith. So he came with confidence because he had a deep need. He came with reverence because he saw God. He came with humility because he realized that God was sovereign and with, he came with faith because he knew he could do it. What happened? Verse 3. Jesus, watch this, stretched out his hand and touched him. Now, that's all it says in the text. But you could add, and the whole crowd gasped in horror. <laughs> if you were a first century Jew, you didn't touch lepers. Leviticus 5.3 says no one was allowed to touch the uncleanness of any person. But that's exactly what Jesus did. And if you think about it, Jesus didn't have to touch him, did he? He could have merely spoken the words, I'm willing, be cleansed. And the man would have been healed. But Jesus touched him. And it wasn't just a reluctant, quick touch with one finger reaching out there. And, whoop, you know, as if trying to avoid being contaminated by this man. No, the text says Jesus stretched out his hand. That is, Jesus extended his arm. He reached out to full length so that everyone standing around would not miss what was happening. And he touched him, and the word touched is from a Greek word, which in the middle voices it is here, means to take hold of. This was not just a quick momentary touch by Jesus. This was rather, he laid his hand on this man and held on to him. In his commentary on this verse, Kent Hughes writes this, quote, perhaps it had been 20 or even 30 years since the leper had been touched by a non-leper's hand. Perhaps he was a father and had once known the embrace of his children and his wife, but that was years ago. In fact, according to Jewish law, no one could come closer than six feet to him. And now Christ touched him. And as Bishop Westcott says, the word expresses more than superficial contact. The Greek word here used here is often translated to take hold of. Jesus, at the very least, placed his hand firmly on the leper. How beautiful Christ is. He did not have to do that. He could have spoken a word or simply willed the healing, but he chose to lay his hand on the poor man right there in front of the multitude. The onlookers were appalled. The disciples were shocked, end quote. And then verse 3 tells us that he, when he touched him, Jesus says, I'm willing, be cleansed. That doesn't mean that Jesus had to be coerced into healing him by being begged to do so. The statement is simply Jesus acknowledging that he had the authority and power to do such. And all that was needed was his decision to act and the man was healed. This is one of the ways in which Jesus' healing is different than the ministry of the Old Testament prophets like Elijah and Elisha. 
They also spoke and acted with authority, but they always deflected attention away from themselves and towards God. And although Jesus was always concerned about glorifying the Father, nevertheless, there is a self-conscious awareness on the center of authority in his own teaching and healing that you won't find in any other person in Scripture. The healing of the leper turns solely on Jesus' will, nothing else. He simply says, I'm willing and the matter is settled. In chapter 8, verse 32, he goes, he says to a bunch of demons, go, and they go. In chapter 9, verse 2, he tells a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Now get up, take your bed, and go home, and the paralytic walks. The authority to heal and transform is implicit in Jesus' person and mission. The authority is already his. He only needs to will the deed, and it's done. But his followers must come to him with an attitude of the leper. In this account, they must recognize the sweep of his authority and petition him for grace, for the decision to display his authority in their favor. Boy, I'd love to finish this, but I can't. So let me just stop here. We will finish this next week and then move on into the next miracle. Are there any questions or comments before we conclude? Yes. You think it's more than coincidental that our COVID social distancing was also six feet? You know, even a blind squirrel finds an occasional acorn. So. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, tutor.